Welcome back to Bardeer, conversations from the criminal justice policy program at Harvard Law School. I'm your host, Skylar Dom, and in this episode, we have the second installment of our series of conversations with students from HLS about their scholarship on criminal justice. As an introduction, if you didn't listen to the first episode, I reached out to a bunch of professors at HLS and also to folks on the journals at the school and just tried to figure out what was good and innovative coming out of the school. And these were some of the students that ended up um, coming onto my radar. So first off, I'm going to talk to Andrew Hanna, who is a rising 3L at HLS. And he wrote a paper for the Law Review uh, on a recent Third Circuit case that opens up the possibility of finding solitary confinement for people with serious mental illnesses unconstitutional. After that, I'm going to talk to Lewis Fisher, who is a recent alum, and I'm going to talk to him about his paper that he wrote for the Civil Rights Civil Liberties Law Review, say that 10 times, uh, on his paper on how cause lawyers can find themselves in a position where their morals might compel them to violate the lawyer's code of ethics, so basically civil disobedience uh, against lawyers' ethics. So all that being said, here's my conversation with Andrew. Andrew, very excited to be here with you. I don't very, I very rarely get to interview friends. Um, yeah. Not that I don't so love. A, so yeah. I'm a friend. Yeah, yeah exactly. So. You've made, oh. you've made the cut. Um, oh. And uh, oh. I thought we would start with the quotation from the paper. You know what? I'm actually going to have you read this. Is that okay? Sure. Yeah. Uh, but I'll give it to you. Okay. Um, the story of Palakovic begins with a 22 year old man with serious mental illness being convicted of burglary. It ends about a year later with that same young man, described by his parents as funny, vibrant, handsome, intelligent, and loving, hanging himself with a bedsheet alone in his tiny cement cell. So who was uh, Brandon Polakovic? Tell us about him. Sure, yeah. So Brandon is somebody who was very much loved by his family and his community. You know, As his parents say, funny, vibrant, handsome, intelligent, loving, just somebody who really just had a genuine concern for for others and you know he grew up with several serious mental illnesses uh, including impulse control disorder and antisocial personality disorder um, alcohol dependence as well and he uh, so you know growing up uh, from what I understand was what was difficult at times for him in terms of getting along with his friends and, and things of that nature but he was resilient and uh, you know from what his parents discuss when he was receiving the right kind of treatment. He was doing very well and um, uh, made a big difference in people's lives. So he ends up in prison, and what does his experience in prison look like? Yeah, so he ends up you know, being convicted of burglary. He's given uh, a sentence of uh, over a year, not, much, not too much over a year, um, and he enters state prison. He enters um, kind of like a... Um, kind of a, an intake, and he's diagnosed with, um, like, he's, a, he's diagnosed fairly accurate. He's diagnosed with the multiple serious mental illnesses that he has. Um, then when he goes to the prison that he's at for his, the duration of his um, about one year there, he, he arrives, and he's, um, you know, the, the, the main mark of what happened during his time there was that he was repeatedly sent to 30-day um, stints in solitary confinement. Um, and so his parents talk about how a lot of um, why he was sent to solitary confinement was just manifestations of his his um, his mental illness. And so things that he ne- couldn't necessarily control um, caused him and what was called in, in the in the um, 
in the lawsuit minor uh, violations of, of prison rules um, caused him to be sent by folks uh, at the prison to these different stints. Um, and so it ended up being several of those 30-day stints. In solitary. Um, in solitary. And so... And um, just to be yeah. clear, from my, from my understanding, so it's not like... Sometimes you think of solitary confinement um, as... Well, so it seems to me like solitary is being used in this case as punishment for relatively minor infractions. Mm-hmm. Like he's not a threat to the entire operation and safety of the prison. Mm-hmm. It's just sort of the next step of punishment if you're already incarcerated. Right, right. And a lot of prisons have regulations that say it should only, solitary should only be used for like the most extreme circumstances. Uh, Massachusetts, for example, um, signed an agreement with a disability rights institution um, saying basically we're, we're only going to use this for folks with mental disabilities in um, the most extreme cases where we think that it's a real threat to other people's safety. But yeah, in this case, um, from everything you know, I understand, it was not that. It was more of my rule infraction ended up being kind of de facto how they treated um, Brandon. Okay. Um, and this is knowing, by the way, that they knew about his mental illnesses, but they also knew the um, the prison guards did know that he had had um, suicidal tendencies in the past. Um, and I'm not sure whether they knew this or not, but his fellow inmates called him suicide as a nickname. So, um, you know, it's certainly not as we'll talk about the place for him to be. So uh, before we get into the appropriateness of of putting Brandon in solitary confinement, can you just talk a little bit about whether or not his experience is, is unique? Uh, it, yeah, so there are um, tens of thousands of folks in solitary confinement today. Um, uh, there's a, a study from um, a combination of Yale Law School and... Um, the Association of State Correctional Administration uh, administers that um, in 2015 found that between 80,000 to 100,000 people were in solitary confinement in the fall of, of 2014. And then folks with serious mental illness are um, disproportionately represented. Um, yeah, I thought I, your paper said it was like up to half. Yeah. Is that right? Up to half. That's, That's right. insane. Um, and one thing I <laughs> no. should say. Uh, one thing I should say is just kind of what it looks like. Yeah. Okay. So you've got a, up to 100,000 people uh-huh. in solitary confinement. What does that actually look like? Yeah. Yeah. So solitary confinement, um, I'll talk about, uh, I'll talk about generally and then Brandon's experience, but generally um, it's folks uh, who are put into a cell of maybe at the largest 100 square feet, usually 80 to 100, which is about the size of actually usually less than the size of a parking space if, mm-hmm. if that's a helpful way to compare it usually no windows usually no like actual light natural light um, usually it's cement um, the door is steel uh, usually and then also um, that you know all of the belongings are within like first of all not many belongings are loud but then all of the belongings are very you know very much within the bed toilet um, range there's not much going on so there's no tv no usually not um, some more extreme ones, um, you know, say, uh, you know, if there's any pictures up on the wall of family, um, you know, there have been prisons that said, no, we can't allow that. Uh, solitary confinement kind of uh, started a long time ago as kind of a, um, it was, a, 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 it, it was, its genesis was in the United States, um, in Pennsylvania in the 1800s with kind of like a, a mentality of, we want to, um, 
you know, create an opportunity for people to reflect on what they did and kind of get closer to God um, through mm. time alone. Um, and, you know, it's uh, evolved into, um, you know, more, I think more and more punitive. Um, part of why it, uh, it developed is that, um, you know, there's in the 80s especially, there was kind of a growth in prisons because more people were um, being imprisoned. And then there was also kind of a deinstitutionalization movement. So more folks with mental illness were, um, were, uh, were not in institutions. And so um, that those two kind of combined to where a lot of these supermax prisons were developed. Supermax is just kind of another variation of solitary confinement. Um, but these prisons were developed, um, and uh, you had uh, this kind of capacity need, so people built these very small cells. Mm-hmm. So the, the, that's kind of the size element, which has kind of continued to be become very small, and then there's also this kind of, uh, these kind of add-ons, which just make it more and more punitive. Um, and one of those, um, you know, when we talk about Brandon, uh, he, he had kind of these small slits as windows. He was... Uh, you know, the, the, the other distinctive thing, aside from the isolation and the size of the cell, is that you're there for so long. So 23, uh, usually 22 to 24 hours a day. Brandon was there 23 to 24 hours a day. He had five hours of weekly exercise in what the complaint calls a, an outdoor cage. Um, and it's, it's pretty accurate. I, I haven't been to this prison, but the one um, that does solitary confinement in Massachusetts um, it is actually like an outdoor cage um, where you can sort of uh, run in a line and for an hour, uh, yeah. five hours a week. Did you go with Professor Amuna's class? Yeah, yeah. To the, I don't I think I went to the MCI Concord, I think. Yeah, so that's the only kind of outside time. Um, so if I were to summarize that, it's it's a small size. It's, um, uh, it's a kind of continual situation where you, you're barely allowed any time outside. Um, and it's uh, a lack of human engagement as well. So Brandon's situation was, even though, again, the prison kind of knew that he had uh, several serious mental illnesses, uh, he only received um, mental health interviews for one to two minutes at a time through the slit in his steel cell door. So if you imagine it, basically, um, and this was by orders from the chief psychologist at the prison, basically, they said you, you should not be spending a lot of time. You should be spending one to two minutes, um, and they don't even even enter the room or allow the person to leave the room. It's just um, an individual like Brandon, um, kind of looking perhaps sideways through the slit in the door, uh, between the door and the maybe the, the building itself, um, and having a conversation with with somebody who's supposed to be treating, you know, obviously a mental illness that will be exacerbated when there's, you know, no interaction with people, no human love or, or care. So Brandon's parents sue. What are his parents suing for? What are they arguing? Yeah. Uh, so Brandon's parents sued in district court in Pennsylvania, basically saying that, among other things, there were two Eighth Amendment violations. Eighth Amendment um, being cruel and unusual punishment. Basically saying that there were two kind of routes to that. One is... It was cruel and unusual punishment to place uh, Brandon in such inhumane conditions of confinement generally in terms of solitary confinement, given that he has serious mental illness. Um, and then second, that it was also cruel and unusual punishment in the sense that it was a failure to provide proper medical and mental health care 
um, to Brandon. So bo- those are two kind of different routes, but both kind of hinged on the fact that he was repeatedly placed in solitary confinement. Okay, so bypassing, not bypassing, but maybe eliding the district court decision and getting to the Third Circuit opinion, which is sort of the heart of your argument, and I think where a lot of, or what you say, a lot of the potential lies. Um, What does the Third Circuit say about those claims, and where could that take us? Mm -hmm. The Third Circuit um, basically reverses and says that there is a claim here. Um, for eight, there are two claims for eight, two types of claims for Eighth Amendment, um, cruel and unusual punishment. And the first is, again, the conditions of confinement claim, and the second is the, the, the mental health care claim. And so in terms of implications, um, so in one sense you could look at this and just say, okay, you know, this was very early stages. It was just like the pleading stage, and the Third Circuit just kind of overturned a decision that maybe was um, overly dismissive of these claims in the first place. But another way to look at it is the court is part of this growing trend of courts that are starting to talk in a language that could potentially lead to a holding one day that says that solitary confinement of folks with serious mental illness, and maybe solitary confinement generally, is always unconstitutional. It's always a violation of the Eighth Amendment. And so what the court did here was they looked, they, they used this like deep down deliberate indifference test that maybe is really unfairly balanced, it is really unfairly balanced against litigants. Um, and and they, they kind of dug into the details and they found it to have been met. But they didn't just do that, they also used language that suggested that maybe this deliberate indifference test would be met by every single prisoner, um, like Brandon, who has serious mental illness, and maybe every single prisoner, period. Um, so that that's kind of the next down the road. But, you know, three or four courts, three courts really have, uh, district courts have found that solitary confinement of folks with serious mental illness is always unconstitutional, that it's per se unconstitutional. And so there is some precedent for it. There is some backing for it. Um, and what this does is I think it continues down this trend of, you know, pushing pushing for that. And that's in addition, by the way, to a lot of courts who have just reached, a lot of states that have just reached settlements like Massachusetts that kind of agreed to stop doing it. There's a lot of, um, there's at least a handful of states that have decided to severely curtail or completely get rid of solitary confinement for folks with serious mental illness. And then there's a lot of cases that aren't published, but uh, like I said, there's a settlement beforehand. Um, And then there are, I should say, there's also injunctions where, the prison doesn't want to continue and gets a sense that they might lose. And so, um, you know, after the injunction, there's a settlement. Um, so, but there's only three published cases that say that it's unconstitutional. What this does is it starts to get towards that through three different routes. So the first route is uh, fo- placing people with serious mental illness in solitary confinement is always unconstitutional because the conditions of confinement always meet the deliberate indifference test. Okay. And then the second one is that folks who are, have serious mental illness who are placed in solitary confinement always meet the Eighth Amendment test um, for uh, inadequate mental health care. Um, and then the third one is a lot more broad and more kind of going back to those high-level principles of dignity that we talked about, which is that, um, and the court gets less into this but provides some language that could be helpful, that basically even, let's not look at this deliberate indifference test, let's take a step back um, when we look at these evolving standards of decency of, of our society, um, this is not, this practice of placing people with serious mental illness in solitary confinement is not in line with that. 
And so before we even develop a test, this is now categorically um, unconstitutional. So the court kind of allows poten three potential promising routes for litigants. Um, you know, two of them are basically that when they argue that deliberate indifference test, they're going to succeed because of the language in, in, the, in, the, um, in, the, in the opinion. And then the third is a divorce from that, independent of that doctrine completely. This is um, a practice that does not square with essentially who we are as a society. And do that. Yeah, so let's double click for a second on that, on that third evolving standards of decency because it seems like the most attenuated, but it also seems like the one... Mm -hmm. That maybe that that has a lot of uh, potential, or would be you know sort of ground shifting if we were to get there. Yeah, yeah. So um, the third kind of route would be that it's unconstitutional because it contravenes quote unquote evolving standards of decency that mark the progress of a maturing society, which is the court's say way of saying um, this is like how we're going to decide what's what's an Eighth Amendment violation, what's not. Um, and they, the court, in looking at other cases, particularly capital punishment cases, in recent years and recent decades, has looked at several factors when deciding whether something violates these evolving standards. Um, one is state legislative action. Uh, another is professional consensus. State legislative action tends to be like a more significant one, but others are professional consensus, history, and international norms. And on each of those four, um, there's a really compelling case that placing folks with serious mental illness in solitary confinement, um, and potentially just generally solitary confinement is unconstitutional and, and goes against all four of those categories. And Palakovic helps in some ways. So on the um, you know states element, Palakovic doesn't mention this, but several states have already banned or severely restricted solitary. Um, and so uh, that kind of, uh, you know, there's a Supreme Court case that says it's not the number of states, it's kind of the trend, and there has been kind of a growing trend of that, um, particularly as solitary confinement has increased in the last you know, 35 years, and then particularly as it's actually grown in the national consciousness a lot in the last 20 or so years, just from op-eds and things like that. So as that's grown, people have pushed legislatures to, to kind of cut that down, um, and so there's a trend there. Then we talked about professional consensus a little bit, but there's not a lot of debate that, especially for folks with serious mental illness, solitary confinement exacerbates those problems significantly. And Consensus so, among the um, medical community? Mm -hmm. or okay. Yeah, among the medical community and even among, um, uh, even among uh, corrections organizations. Really? And, so, uh, and, and that it does so particularly for folks with mental illness, but that it does so for, for everyone. And, and again, this is sort of intuitive because, you know, you're not... If the, anybody thinks about, like, if I live a life of complete seclusion, sometimes for decades, but, you know, even for a few days, um, and I'm treated as if I'm much less than you, and nobody talks to me and nobody interacts with me, um, and I'm in a dark, kind of dark room, um, and I don't have many belongings, then, you know, it, it's not too surprising that, that that's the findings that, that have come out. And Palakovic talks about this, and it says, quote-unquote, there's 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 a quote-unquote growing consensus with roots going back a century, unquote, that segregation can cause, uh, segregation, another term for solitary confinement, cause severe harm. And then internationally, there's considerable agreement that it is a form of torture against uh, two or three treaties. And then uh, you take all that, and then you look at the recent momentum, particularly with capital punishment, that where the evolving standards of decency concept has spurred expansions of Eighth Amendment rights, uh, including for people with mental disability. 
Um, and then you look at the momentum in chipping away at the legal underpinnings of segregation generally, uh, but also as it relates to youth. All of that kind of is pushing towards. And then there's also been Supreme Court opinions, uh, concurrences and dissents recently uh, from Kennedy and Breyer, for example, that are just kind of bringing up this uh, kind of distaste for solitary confinement in different ways. And so it's kind of been chipping away. You know, one of the more common ones that they've railed against and said, we really need to have a case on this is solitary confinement of folks who are on death row and kind of don't know when they're going to, um, yeah. you know, um, uh, end their time there. So all of that leads to kind of this high-level attack on solitary confinement um, as unconstitutional. And Plakovic, I think, helps a little bit there. All right. I think we'll leave it there. Um, this was great. Thank you. Are you sure? I, yeah. I feel like I was not as articulate as I wanted to be. Oh, no. I, I think everyone feels like that. <laughs> don't worry. I'll make you sound smart. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so now we're going to switch gears to my conversation with Lewis. Uh, Lewis came up with the idea for this paper on civil disobedience when he was doing an interdisciplinary fellowship at Auschwitz, the Auschwitz. Uh, and again, the paper centers around the possibility of cause lawyers disobeying legal ethics when it comes into contravention with their morals. So here's our conversation, but before we get into it, I just want to make a quick terminology note, which is we're going to refer to lawyering law, and that is basically just another way of saying the law that governs the legal profession, i.e. the legal ethics rules. Hi, it's Skylar. Hi, Skylar. Hi, how are you? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? Good. So do you pronounce your name Lewis? Is that right? Yeah, Lewis. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, so where where in the world are you? I am in New York City, in Brooklyn, to be more precise. <laughs> oh, cool. And uh, what are you doing in New York? I'm in the midst of an SDNY clerkship right now. Oh, cool. So you're it's a one year gig. Yeah. Awesome. And then what yeah. what what? does life have in store for you after your clerkship or do you not know yet? Um, I'm doing a fellowship next year at the NAACP legal defense fund. Oh, right. You, um, you got the law review public interest fellowship. Is that right? Did I make that? That's awesome. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, if it's okay with you, I'm happy to just get started or, uh, do you have questions? No, I think we can uh, we can go for it. Cool. All righty. Um, for the non-lawyers who listen to this podcast, um, who are cause lawyers and why are they different or how are they different than sort of the normal lawyer you might think of helping to close the purchase of your house or something? So if you mm-hmm. think that lawyers writ large conceive of their professional job, their role as simply advocating on behalf of a client. Um, you know, so in your example, advocating on behalf of the homeowner or the home seller who is, you know, purchasing or selling, um, and just trying to do best in representing their interests, whether it's in court or in a transaction, that's what a lawyer does. Cause lawyers, um, you know, they're, they're a subset. Obviously they have clients and obviously their clients, um, they have, 
ethical and moral duties to those clients, but they also conceive of their profession and their role with an activist mentality, um, that their role is not only to advocate on behalf of an individual, but to kind of promote a specific social change agenda um, in addition to, obviously, their primary goal of helping an individual client. Mm-hmm. As a complete side note, do you subscribe to one of those philosophies more than another? Um, yeah, I think I definitely, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be working next year as um, a fellow at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, uh, which I think of as one of the quintessential mm-hmm. kind of if not prototype causalering organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, in that capacity, I definitely think I conceive myself as a causalier. Um, when I was working as a student attorney at the Legal Aid Bureau, um, there was definitely a similar sense of causalering, I think, that was shared widely, but not universally among the membership, which was also interesting. What are some examples where a cause lawyer, maybe specifically in the criminal context, might find their obligations under, quote, lawyering law to come in conflict with their sort of morality or their objectives in promoting whatever cause they're working for? The examples that are dealt with in the paper are for, like, one is if the prosecutor kind of accidentally gives your client a seven-month plea deal when they were kind of expected to give a seven-year plea, mm-hmm. um, what is your, how do you respond at, to that situation? The second example um, deals with the death penalty abolitionist, um, another kind of quintessential cause lawyer. Um, whose client, the, the word, like, quote, volunteers um, for the death penalty, it's obviously a loaded term and kind of the wrong term. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. the, paper, the paper kind of cites to it a Thurgood Marshall, I think, dissent, um, where he basically explains how this often comes about under extremely coercive um, circumstances where basically someone, you know, volunteers more like, you know, give up or, or like have their, their will or humanity broken. Right. Um, but putting the, you know, the semantic point aside from the perspective of a lawyer, the, the ethical dilemma is very stark. Um, you bear a duty to your client um, to kind of effectuate their will and to enable their autonomy Um in, in the Legal Aid Bureau, we talked all the time about client-centered lawyering, client-centered counseling. Um, this presents a very stark dilemma where there's client-centered lawyering on the one hand and a, a strongly, deeply, and sincerely held um, moral compulsion to act against that on the other. Yeah. And, and, and what, what would you advocate? Um, well, so that's like, what's interesting. I mean, it's interesting talking about this paper, um, let's say in an interview maybe where all someone sees is the title (laughs) on my CV and they're like, so like, I take it from your title that you like think legal ethics are, you know, BS and that we shouldn't follow them. And just to clarify that the title of the paper is civil disobedience as legal ethics. Right. 
Um, and so it's meant to be provocative a little bit. Um, but the, the point is more that there are a specific set of dilemmas that arise for cause lawyers and that the code of ethics is not, or the codes of ethics um, are generally, one, not written with them in mind, mm-hmm. and two, for that reason, unsurprisingly, like, don't always provide them useful guidance. Um, so I'm, like, obviously shying away from your question about <laughs> what I do. Um, but what I, you know, what I say a cause lawyer, I imagine in that situation a, a cause lawyer and criminal defense lawyers there's a scholar um, named Margaret Etienne who basically has written about how a certain subset of you know public defenders conceive of themselves as cause lawyers, mm-hmm. um, social activist lawyers, and um, the, the, what the paper kind of says is if that's the case and if they feel morally compelled um, to act in contravention of the legal ethics code, they can do that but they have to do so kind of within certain constraints and within more specifically the constraints that would make civil disobedience um, morally justified in those circumstances. Right. Um, So (laughs) I'm sorry for trying to trap you, but I think that that's uh, helpful to sort of to suss out here is, is, Really, the the crux of it seems like if legal ethics are simply a set of laws, and as a cause lawyer, your sense of sort of furthering the cause butts up against that laws, civil dif- disobedience. This isn't what you're advocating, but you're sort of as a way of thinking about it. Civil disobedience would justify acting in contravention of those legal ethics or, or laws, lawyering laws in some cases. Is that, is, is that the gist of what you're saying? Yeah. Um, and along with the framework of civil disobedience, which or the several that, um, you know, drawing on political philosophy mm-hmm. that the paper puts forward, um, that comes with, for example, accepting the consequences of punishment. You know, obviously, like, from familiar and examples in civil rights history, like, that was clearly always assumed and understood that the disobedience of unjust laws um, came with accepting the consequence. And part of the value in it, and the paper um, says that this could be the case for cobblers disobeying legal ethics as well and accepting the punishment, um, the value is communicative. Right. Um, and in that way, the justification for it is not only kind of inward looking for the lawyer and their own moral, um, you know, their, them having a chance to satisfy their own moral um, compulsions, but it's also outward looking and consequentialist in that we would hope that it would, if by disobeying, you know, professional ethics code, which isn't necessarily itself unjust, calling attention, promoting um, dialogue around and even dissent around, you know, certain unjust systems. Okay, thank you so much for listening. That's been another episode of Wardeer. 
And thank you to Poddington Bear for producing our theme music. Thank you to Brooke Hopkins and uh, Anna Wyke at the Criminal Justice Policy Program for being totally awesome. And if you guys want to get in touch with us, please feel free to email us at voirdearpodcast at gmail.com and remember to rate and review on whatever platform you are listening to this on. Thanks so much.